Will you join me in Matthew chapter 23, beginning in verse 13? But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people. For you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Jumping down to verse 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Woe to you blind guides who say, whoever swears by the temple, that's nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple is obligated. You fools and blind men, which is more important, the gold or the temple that sanctified the gold? And you say, whoever swears by the altar, that is nothing. But whoever swears by the offering on it, he is obligated. You blind men, which is more important? The offering or the altar that sanctifies the offering? Therefore, whoever swears by the altar swears both by the altar and by everything on it. Whoever swears by the temple swears both by the temple and by him who dwells within it. And whoever swears by heaven swears both by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others, you blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup of and of the dish, so that the outside of it may become clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous. And you say, if we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in the shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, so that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous bloodshed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. So ends the reading of God's word from Matthew chapter 23. Short prayer. Father God, these are the very words of Christ, the divine son of David, we pray 
that you would use your word, this profitable word, to teach, to rebuke, to correct, and to train in righteousness. I pray you would give us all, preacher, listener alike, ears to hear, and a heart willing to examine oneself in light of these scriptures. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. What is hypocrisy? Hypocrisy is to act apart. It really comes from the word for that which would describe what an actor does on a stage. It is to be a pretender or a poser. It is to present intentionally and deliberately to present outwardly what you are not inwardly. The clearest biblical description, or the shortest perhaps beyond this passage, were the words of Jesus quoting from the Old Testament when he said, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. That's really the classic description of hypocrisy. And if hypocrisy, religious hypocrisy especially, you know there's all kinds of hypocrisy. There's political hypocrisy, there's parental hypocrisy, (laughs) there's teacher hypocrisy, there's all kinds of hypocrisy. We're going to focus today on the worst kind of all, religious hypocrisy. If religious hypocrisy is a pattern of your life, if it is the unbroken habitual reality of your life, then then you really are a religious fraud. And, and if this is an unbroken, unrepentant, no sorrow pattern of your life, then you're a religious fraud and you're really headed for eternal destruction. And you, and you really need to wake up and repent. See, one of the worst sins of all sins is really religious hypocrisy. That's why we sense and hear such anger in our Lord's words here, and even grief in these words. And so as, <clears throat> as we begin today, <clears throat> I just want to start there, that if this is an unrepentant reality, the only thing that you need to be thinking about is begging God for repentance in your life. Now, before we can dive in to this passage... <clears throat> We ask the question, how do we stomach the tone and the language of Jesus here? This is one of the most blistering, some would even say harsh words of all the New Testament. In fact, all of the Bible, and they come from none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who has told us he is gentle and lowly at heart. So how do we we understand this tone and this language? First of all, we need to understand that Presenting woes or pronouncing woes is not new with Jesus and it's not unique with Jesus. This is found in the Old Testament. Amos did this. Micah did this. Habakkuk did this. They pronounced woes on Israel. Of course, the most well-known of these woes in the Old Testament would be Isaiah. And he pronounced six woes on wayward Israel in Isaiah chapter 5, verses 8 to 25. That's uh, one of those six is that famous line, woe to you who, who say, uh, you know, right is wrong and wrong is right, who call good evil and evil good. So it's not new with Jesus. Second, we need to understand that the language here and the tone here would not have been shocking to the ears of the original hearers or even to Matthew's readers. 
this is how they argued. This is how they debated. This is how they talked to one another uh, in their passionate Jewish Middle Eastern culture. So it sounds way over the top to us, and it may sound really shocking to us, but it would not have sounded that way to the Pharisees standing there that day. Number three, the third thing we need to understand as we stomach the the tone and language here, and this is something I think we really don't hear very often. I I would suspect that as you sit here today, you probably have in your mind that Pharisee is synonymous with hypocrite, and that is not the case. The issue is not Phariseeism per se. The issue were the hypocrites among the Pharisees, okay? Being a Pharisee isn't the problem. It's just that some of them were hypocrites of the worst kind. In fact, there are writings outside the Bible where the Pharisees denounce their own hypocrisy in their ranks, and they include six of the types that Jesus mentions here. Six of, he has seven, they had six, they actually overlap. So hear this, Jesus is not a sworn enemy of Pharisees. He is a sworn enemy of hypocrisy, especially religious hypocrisy. As an example of what I mean by this, I don't think Saul of Tarsus, who was a Pharisee, was a hypocrite along the lines of what Jesus is denouncing here in Matthew 23. Saul says, Paul said, wrote that I serve my forefathers with a clear conscience. And so there's an example of not all of them were rank hypocrites. Some were. The fourth thing we need to understand as we begin to dive into this passage is as God, as the divine son of David, he can speak like this, we can't. He knows the heart. We don't. We, we can't go arming ourselves with the woes of Jesus and go pronouncing gloom and doom and condemnation on other people because we don't know their hearts. We don't know their motives. We haven't seen and heard everything they've ever done in their life. But Jesus, as God, has the right. He has the knowledge. All right? So this is really then the righteous verdict And condemnation. Did it sound condemning? Yes, it is condemning. And it is the righteous condemnation by the supreme judge of the earth, by the supreme judge of all men. He has the right and he has the authority. That brings us to our main idea of the text, and we'll have some slides this morning to help you see these. First of all, I give you the text main idea or big idea. That means, what did it mean to them then and there? Speaking seven woes against the hypocritical scribes and Pharisees, these experts in the law of Moses and these Pharisees with all of their oral tradition around the law of Moses, Jesus denounced their religious hypocrisy as the basis for condemning them to hell. It really begins with that condemnation. You're not in, you're not going in, you do not enter yourselves, and it ends that way as well. That brings us then to the sermon idea. What does this uh, mean for us today? In strongest terms possible, this passage warns against religious hypocrisy in the church. In the church. You know, when we study the Gospels, it's interesting because we'll have the words of Jesus that he spoke to his contemporaries around 30, 32 AD. 
But you also have the gospel writer who wrote this 25, 30 years later, who compiled it 25, 30 years later. So he had a purpose as well. So it's kind of this dual focus as you go through the gospels. And so we hear these words of Jesus to the Pharisees, the original audience. It would have been for the crowds. It would have been for his disciples to ponder as well. We also recognize that Matthew wrote this to the first century church that he was a part of, a primarily Jewish church. And so by way of application, we don't need to sit here today and apply this to the ancient scribes and Pharisees who no longer exist. Certainly, we do not need to sit here today and apply this to Jews and Judaism of today. That's not what we're here to do at all, is it? No, we're not here to do any of those things. We're here to say we need to aim this at the church, at us. And so that should be really our only application of this passage. It is a stern and harsh and and, and alarming warning then to the professing church, to the visible church about the dangers and the outcome of religious hypocrisy, if not repented of. Now, there are seven uh, here in this passage, not eight. Verse 14 is interesting. It's not in the earliest manuscripts in Matthew. Verse 14 is believed to have been brought into Matthew by later copyists of the scrolls, borrowing from Luke 20, 47 and Matthew 12, 40. So I'm leaving out verse 14, as many of your Bibles probably do as well. They probably have a footnote to that effect. That was a, something Jesus said in a different setting, not in this setting. That gives us seven woes here, the number of completion, <clears throat> the number of fullness. Now, how do we categorize these seven so that we can kind of get a handle on them in a, in a message, in one whole message? Well, there are three pairs and then a climax. Uh, woe one and two are similar, they form a pair. Three and four are similar, they form a pair. Five and six are similar, they form a pair. And then number seven is the climax. And that brings us then to our four marks of religious hypocrisy. Number one, religious hypocrisy. You can go ahead, thank you. Religious hypocrisy leads people to hell using a false path to heaven. They're condemning people to eternal damnation, but they're not doing it as a, as a drug dealer or a prostitute. They're doing it garbed in religion, presenting to their audience what they claim to be is a path to heaven, but it is a false path to heaven. This is verses 13 and 15. These first two woes then have this in common. <clears throat> they speak of the effect on others of religious hypocrisy. That's what we're dealing with here in 1 and 2, the effect. He says, woe to them because they, quote, shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, literally. It's like someone's trying to follow you through a door and you slam the door in their face and deny them entrance. And that's what the scribes and Pharisees were doing to their nation, to their disciples, to their own people. How so? Well, a lot of ways. They misinterpreted the Torah. They added things to God's Word. They were preventing people from understanding what God really meant by uh, what He put in Genesis through uh, Deuteronomy. But that's all kind of secondary to what's going on in this moment, in this setting. They are slamming the door, closing the door, locking it and barring it in people's faces because they have rejected Jesus as the Messiah. You see, Jesus is the way into the kingdom. <laughs> Jesus is the door. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And these men have rejected him, have denounced him, 
And so in that sense, they are shutting the kingdom in the people's faces. Now, you know, these Pharisees especially were zealous for their oral traditions that they put around the law as a fence. And they were so zealous that verse 15 says that they were missionaries, zealous missionaries for their oral traditions. They would travel around on earth and, I mean, on sea and on earth. In other words, they went outside of Palestine, outside of Israel to make converts. They're trying to make one proselyte, one convert. What was this? Well, they would go outside of Israel to Jewish synagogues. They would find God-fearing Gentiles, Gentiles who had made a kind of a partial conversion to Judaism. They were called the God-fearers. We find these folks in the book of Acts. And they would go to these people, and they would want to make them full converts to Judaism, which meant circumcision And now you start following the oral traditions of the Pharisees. This was what they were after. And they were very, very zealous to do this. But look at the effect that they have on these once Gentiles that they're now turning into full Jews by way of circumcision. Look at the effect they have on them. You make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. You're a son of hell, scribe and Pharisee. You're a son of hell, religious hypocrite. And when you lead people to follow your hypocrisy, you're doubling down on their condemnation, if you will. This is the effect they have. Why are they twice as much a son of hell? Because what would happen is what we see throughout church history often is these converts would then try to out-Pharisee the Pharisees. And they would go even further with rules and traditions and more and more layers upon God's Word. The bottom line is a religious hypocrite claims to know God and claims to know the path to heaven, but actually condemns their followers with a false gospel, with lies from the pit of hell. And these lies and this false gospel will often come under the banner of Christianity. It'll often come under the banner of Jesus Christ. It'll often have Jesus in it, grace in it, mercy in it, forgiveness in it. All kinds of biblical and spiritual words will be sprinkled among their words. But in fact, it's a false gospel. For example, we could talk about Joseph Smith, founder of Mormonism, Charles Taze Russell, founder of Jehovah's Witnesses, or Jim Jones, or David Koresh, or we could talk about the social false gospel of liberal Protestants, or we could talk about the false gospel of critical race theory. The theme, uh, the common theme of all of these is they're spreading the serpent's poison of damning heresy. Spreading the serpent's original poison. No wonder Jesus is so angry. They're not going in themselves. Those who are trying to go in, verse 13, those who are seeking the kingdom of God, verse 13, those who want to be right with God, they don't allow those to go in either. In fact, they make them worse than they were to begin with when they get done with them. Another reason why they are twice as much a son of hell is because once you think you're on the path to heaven... Once you think you've believed the right thing to get there and it's actually the wrong thing, it's going to be really hard to get you off that path, right? You're going to be convinced. That's why it's really hard for people to come out of 
uh, some of these cults in particular. So that's number one of the four marks of religious hypocrisy. Number two, religious hypocrisy uses deceptive practices. We could even say deceptive religious practices to cover up sin. This is really this big section now. It's the biggest section of this, uh, of verses 16 to 24. In verses 16 to 24, we have the next two woes, and they have this in common. They are two examples of religious deceptive practices to cover up sin. The two examples that Jesus gives is the making of oaths, swearing, swearing I will do this or that, and tithing. These are the two religious practices that the scribes and Pharisees adopted, taught their disciples, and it was actually a smokescreen. It was actually a red herring. It was, it was a diversion tactic so that they could hide behind these things and cover up their own sin. This is what religious hypocrisy is and does. These oaths that are spoken of here, it went like this. They said, if you make an oath based on the temple, the altar, or heaven, it's not binding. You don't have to keep it. It's like, I promise to do it, and you've got your hand behind your back, and you're crossing your fingers. <laughs> but if you make an oath, swore, if you swear to God based on the gold, an offering, or God himself, it was binding. Now, why was this even necessary? Well, the rabbi spent a lot of time. Can you imagine this as your life? <laughs> These biblical scholars sat around in groups hour after hour, day after day, deciding whether a particular oath was valid or invalid. And so they, de they developed this elaborate system and process of oath-making and oath-evaluation to determine that. Because if it's valid, you've got to do it. But if it falls into the loophole and it's invalid, oh, it wasn't ever binding to begin with. Judaism of Jesus' day had this elaborate system then of making oaths. They would even make oaths for just casual, run-of-the-mill statements. Just everyday, conversational kind of statements. They would make an oath about it. For example, just, let's just be ridiculous for a moment because this is what they were. It would be like me saying right now, I swear on the pulpit of KBC that I'm going to have tea at lunch today. I swear on the pulpit. And then I go to lunch and I decide to get a hamburger. And I thought, you know what? I'd rather have a Coke with my hamburger. And I can do that because that wasn't a valid oath. I didn't swear on the Bible on the pulpit. I just sweared on the pulpit. That's the kind of loophole they would create and look for. To swear on the pulpit wouldn't be binding. But if I had sworn on the Bible, now that would have been binding. And I would have to have tea. What it came down to was it simply was a deceptive dishonest practice of the scribes and Pharisees to make vows that they never intended to keep. They were just covering up a tricky, manipulative, deceptive heart 
trying to appear righteous before men, trying to impress others with these vows, but all the while it's coming out of their mouth, they know, I have no intention to actually do that. And so Jesus gives a correction to it, really, in verses 20 through 22. Those three verses is Jesus' correction of this practice. And what he is basically saying in 20 through 22 is this. And it's very important for us, even in our day and age, of of maybe swearing or saying we're going to do something or we're not going to do something. Very important. Jesus is saying in those three verses, every oath you make is valid because everything you say and everything you do is before the Lord. Forget all of these nuances, all these loopholes, whether it's the altar itself or the offering on the altar, that's, that's irrelevant because everything we say and everything we do, God hears it, God is watching, God sees it. So whatever you say you're going to do, do it. If you say you're not going to do something, don't do it. And that's why Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5, 33 to 37, let your yes be yes and your no be no. You see, the best course of action of all is to not make, do not make oaths at all. Don't swear at all. Just let your yes be yes and let your no be no. But if you are going to make an oath, understand that God heard it. God sees it. You need to do what you said you're going to do. That was the first example. The second example is in 23 and 24. And it is the example of deceptive tithing. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe. You notice three items, mint, dill, and cumin. Mint was a spice used to flavor food or maybe to settle an upset stomach. And dill and cumin are seeds, tiny little seeds that grew from plants. He mentions three, and he says, you're tithing off of this stuff, but you've neglected the weightier provisions of the law, the things that matter more than these other things. And he mentions three, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You're tithing your mint, you're forgetting justice. You're tithing your dill seed, you're forgetting mercy. You're tithing a common seed, you're forgetting faithfulness to God. And those three things that are the weightier provisions of the law sum up as love God and love your neighbor. The first two relate to man, the third one relates to God. These are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, and you swallow a camel. Now, this tithing of these uh, plants is drawn from Leviticus 27, 30, which reads, Thus all the tithe of the land, of the seed of the land, and of the fruit of the tree is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. The intent of Leviticus 27.30 to an agricultural society was you need to tithe on your cash crops. Your farmers, you've got orchards, you've got vineyards, you've got fields of wheat and other grains. You need to raise that as your livelihood. You have a cash crop and then you are to tithe on your cash crop as you harvest year in and year out. The persnickety Pharisees took Leviticus 27.30 and they applied it to their kitchen window plants. They applied it to little plants that grew in the kitchen to flavor their food, to settle an upset stomach. Have you seen a dill seed? Can you imagine counting dill seeds and getting to number 10 and setting it aside as your tithe? Counting leaves on a mint plant and setting aside the 10th one as your tithe. And it's as if Jesus, see, they're going beyond the intent of the law. 
And they would have argued it's the letter of the law. It says tithe of the land. And I guess technically they would have been correct. And so Jesus is basically saying to them, fine, whatever. If you want to tithe like that, fine. Just make sure you pay equal attention and effort to the weightier matters of the law. And you know what? If they'd been paying equal attention to the weightier matters of the law, they would have had no time to count dill seeds. Who's got time to count dill seeds when I'm all about faithfulness to God, mercy, and justice to my neighbor? And so he says, verse 24, you strain out a gnat and you swallow a camel. The Bible is amazing. You've read that. You've heard that your whole life probably. I have as well. This week I learned what he meant by it. So wine was a popular drink, of course, in their day. They'd have open containers of wine. An open container of wine would attract gnats. Tiny, little, tiny gnats. The Pharisees would take a cloth and they would filter their wine to filter out the gnats. Not as a way of hygiene. Swallowing the gnat would not hurt you physically. But because a gnat under the law was an unclean insect. And they would be terrified if a tiny little gnat got into their wine and they drank it by mistake. And so they would strain out the unclean insect gnat. And then so in their way of operation, Jesus says, you're straining out the gnat and you're swallowing a camel. Camel was the largest unclean animal in their world. You're straining out the smallest unclean insect to only turn right around and swallow the most defiling, largest unclean animal that you would know of. The point is, religious hypocrisy uses deceptive practices, even religion, to cover up sin. You see, it's not just majoring on the minors and minoring on the majors. It's not just using religion to appear righteous to others. It's actually using religion to cover a secret life of sins. And these would be both sins of commission and sins of omission. In this case, theirs was a sin of omission, what they were leaving out. What they weren't doing because they were so wrapped around the axle of what they were doing. Spending an inordinate amount of time and energy on something God could really care less about, your kitchen plants, and neglecting the things that God is passionate about, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. They were using religion as a front. They were like mafia who have a legitimate business to hide a corrupt business. Let me give you some examples of how this might look in our day and age. It's a person that reads in 1 Peter that we are to submit ourselves to every human institution. And so they never speed one mile per hour over the speed limit. Never. In fact, they want to be so careful to never, ever, ever speed that they'll consistently drive 5 and 10 miles below the speed limit. But they do not know their next door neighbor's name. It's a person who's at church every time the doors are open, but they haven't helped a stranger in years. It's a person who tithes on their savings account on that minuscule amount of interest in your savings account. 
You know, oh, I got $2.17 this month in my interest in my savings account. I better tithe on that. When in fact, they're just covering up greed and materialism and how they spend the rest of their money. We've talked about that in our podcast this week, Stewardship of Treasure. Yes, you, know, you, you can't give the 10% and say, now I can do whatever I want with my 90%. It's all God's. You can't be this religious, teetotaling, toe-the-line tither on every single thing that comes into your hands and then forget that you're a steward and a manager of the rest of it. See, that's using a religious practice to cover up sin, to cover up what amounts to the denial of the lordship of Christ, right? If I don't understand that the 90% or the 80% or the whatever it is, all 100, if I don't understand that that's all from God and it all belongs to God, then that's a sin, that's a problem. Here's another example. It would be saying amen in a sermon to something the preacher said to go do or not do with no intention to actually do it. Right? That's religious hypocrisy. It would be to claim that the Bible is God's word. Oh, you hold up the ball. Oh, that's God's word right there. God's living word. That's authoritative. That's God's word. But then you never read it and you never study it. You don't really like sermons. You're not about it. You just like to claim that it's God's word without really caring what's in it and submitting yourself to it. That's, that's religious hypocrisy. Here's the deal. In religious hypocrisy, outwardly lawful behavior actually conceals a lawless heart. And so Jesus, the righteous judge, will be obligated to say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. That's Matthew 7. He was dealing with re religious hypocrisy then too, right? What were they doing in Matthew 7? We, we, we cast out demons in your name. We healed in your name. We did many great deeds in your name. And he says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Number three. And the four marks of religious hypocrisy, number three, is religious hypocrisy focuses on appearance, not character. This is verses 25 to 28 in the next and final uh, pairing of these woes. Just take a look at the verses here. I want to point out some words to you in verses 25 through 28. You might want to circle these in your Bible or just highlight them in your mind. For you clean the outside, but inside, inside, outside. Verse 27, outside, inside. Verse 28, outwardly, but inwardly. Here are two illustrations for us then and these two woes that make one point. And the one point is our third mark. Religious hypocrisy will always focus on appearance, not character. It will always be concerned with reputation, not character. Right? What people see versus what God sees. How do I appear to others versus how do I appear to God? This is really at the heart and soul of all religious play acting. As I care more about what man thinks of me than what God thinks of me. I'm a people pleaser, not a God pleaser. I am man-centered, not God-centered. I want the applause and the praise and the acceptance and the tolerance and the inclusion of man 
and not God. This is religious hypocrisy. Where all a person is driven by and motivated by is what is my reputation with others, not what is my character before a holy God. And religious hypocrisy on the outside, you have a squeaky clean Boy Scout or a squeaky clean straight A student, the model child, the model student. But on the inside, as Jesus says in verse 25, they are full of robbery and self-indulgence, consumed with greed, materialism, plunder is the word there, and self-indulgence, which probably speaks of sexual sin, sexual immorality, lack of self-control, self-indulgence. Outside, the cup is clean, the dish is sparkling. Inside, a thief and an out-of-control individual. Examples are legendary and legion. True story. Well-known pastor a few years ago used $200,000 of his church resources to get his book on the New York Times bestselling list so that he could grow in fame, popularity, and wealth. $200,000 from his church to buy his book, having calculated and manipulated that that's what it would take to get that book on the bestseller list. True stories, prominent evangelicals, whether in academia, pastors, leading major evangelical organizations, prominent evangelicals have fallen into sexual sins that they had publicly denounced that they had made a career of publicly denouncing. And once the fall happens, we find out that this has been not a one-time thing, not a stumble of a, of, of a brother, but in many cases, a long-standing pattern of their life, meaning this was what was going on. As one commentator put it, it's, quote, sometimes those who most loudly protest the sins of others are guilty of the same. That's what Jesus means here by the whitewashed tomb. He went from the cup in the dish, that's the first illustration, to these tombs in verse 27, the second illustration. This needs some explanation. Verse 27, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, appear splendid, appear majestic, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness or corruption. This is very interesting. I told you what I learned about the gnats and the, and the camel. This was another moment of learning this week. Of course, I knew about the rocks or the uh, stones that they put in front of their tombs, right? So they didn't bury six feet under. It's too much rock, too hard. They buried in caves. They buried in above-ground tombs. And so they would then use very large stones or rocks to block the entrance to those tombs so that animals could not get in, of course. This is why the stone was rolled away from the, after the resurrection uh, of Jesus before the resurrection. So they had these massive stones. These stones could be moved with some effort, but it would take probably several very stout men to do so. The tombs then would often be reused. This was very difficult to carve a tomb out of limestone, right? This is a very valuable thing. And so they would reuse the tombs once the body had decomposed. Once there was nothing left but bones, they would take the bones out and they would use that tomb once again. Now, for a Jewish person under the Old Covenant, if they touched a tomb, if they touched a stone, if they got too close to a grave, they became unclean for seven days. 
As Jesus stands here and speaks these words, it is Passover week. It is the largest festival in the Jewish calendar. Passover leading into the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which means hundreds of thousands of people have come into Jerusalem and the surrounding areas of Israel in areas that they're not familiar with. And so before the major feast, the Jews would whitewash their stones and their tombs as a warning. This is a tomb. Stay away. Don't touch this or you'll become unclean. You want to ruin your whole Passover week? Just be unclean for the entire week. And you can't be with your family and you can't participate in the celebration of Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So this painting, this whitewashing was nothing more than a warning. And what would happen then is you would have on the outside of the tomb this fresh, clean, whitewashed appearance, and as the bright sun would hit it, it would be, you know, it might even like shine and be brilliant looking on the outside, while on the inside, a corpse is decomposing. That's the illustration. That's the picture of a a religious hypocrite, whitewashed on the outside, a decomposing corpse on the inside. And that's the third mark then. That's how Jesus illustrates a person who lives for reputation and not character. Who are we? We are who we are when no one is around. Whatever we are, when we are alone in our private moments that no one knows and no one sees, that's our truest self And it is that self that needs to be focused on holiness, righteousness, godliness, justice, mercy, faithfulness. On what God sees, on character, on our hearts. Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flows the issues of life. We are called to guard our hearts Watch over our hearts. Cultivate a heart for God in the private moments of our lives. Because if it's not happening in the private moments, it's not happening. We're to love the Lord our God with all of our hearts, all of our mind, all of our soul, all of our strength. And love our neighbor as ourselves, justice and mercy. The seventh and final woe is the climax. It stands alone as a mark. Religious hypocrisy rejects God's true messengers. 29 to 36 then climaxes all of this with really the climax of the climax being in verse 33. As we look at it once again, it's, it's almost as if Jesus says, uh, speaking of tombs, verse 27 Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and you adorn the monuments of the righteous. And so they had the tomb of David there uh, in their setting. They would adorn it. They would take care of it. They would beautify it. They would build the tombs of the well-known prophets. And they would go around and say, you know, if we had been alive when our fathers killed the prophets, we wouldn't have done that because we're better than our fathers. And so verse 31, Jesus says, you just hung yourself You testify against yourselves. You are actually a son of those who murdered the prophets. You're their physical offspring, and you're the offspring of their character. You are just like your fathers, he's telling them. 
And you are guilty yourself, not because they're guilty for the sins of their fathers, but because the sins of their fathers lives right out through them once again. And that's what he means by verse 32. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers. He's basically saying the apple didn't didn't fall far from the tree. You Pharisees and scribes, you're just like the Jewish fathers of old. NIV just nails verse 32. If you're looking at an NIV right now, it says, Complete what your ancestors started. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, You've already decided to kill me. Just get it over with. It's like what he said to Judas at the Last Supper. What you do, do quickly. You've already decided it. Satan's already entered you. You're going to do it. Get it over with. Fill up then the measure of the guilt and the sin of your fathers. And once their cup of sin is full, they're filling up the measure of their sin. It wasn't full yet, but once it becomes full, it will include the crucifixion of Christ, of course. And it will include the uh, persecution of the apostles, the murder of the apostles in time. Once that cup is full, God's judgment will fall. A.D. 70. Talked about it enough in recent weeks. Verse 33, he really hits the, the final high note. You serpents, you brood of vipers, you offspring of poisonous snakes. How will you escape the sentence of hell, of Gehenna, of eternal fire? This is the judge's verdict. This is the judge's condemnation. And it is a rhetorical question. And the answer is, they can't and they won't. And so the judge is both angry because they won't and he grieves because they can't. And we'll see some of that grief next week in verses 37 to 39 as he weeps over Jerusalem. But for now, we need to see that they are blinded by their hypocrisy. Did you notice previously how many times he called them blind? Blind guides, blind this, blind that. Several times there in a row, they're blinded by the hypocrisy. They actually think they're better than their fathers were, but they're actually worse than their fathers were. Why are they worse than their fathers? Because they are in the midst of rejecting the greatest prophet of all, They are rejecting the Savior Himself, the Messiah Himself. And so they're not saying we're we're even with our fathers. They're saying we're better than our fathers. Jesus says you're actually worse than your fathers. You're committing a far greater sin. And so it is today. Listen to me. To reject Jesus Christ is worse than Cain killing his brother Abel. To reject Jesus Christ is worse than Herod cutting off John the Baptist's head. To reject Jesus Christ is worse than the Jews stoning Stephen. All of those sins can be forgiven. You reject Jesus Christ and die in that state and you will never be forgiven. It is the one sin that condemns us to hell forever. All other sins can be forgiven. Religious hypocrites then are like the serpent of old, Satan himself. They come only to steal, kill, and destroy they have no life in themselves. They can give no life. They're not on the path to eternal life. They can, need, they can lead no one to eternal life. You can't take someone somewhere you're not going yourself, somewhere you haven't been. They have a venom of false teaching and false gospel and even hatred that is aimed now in this final point 
toward God's true messengers. This is always the case. 2,000 years this has been the case. Where you have religious hypocrites, they will always hate and reject God's true messengers because they ultimately reject Christ. And so what will Jesus do? Verse 34 is what he will do. This is so fascinating. They're going to do to people just what they will do to Jesus. And so what will Jesus do? Therefore, behold, behold, look, you got to really pay attention here. What am I going to do about it? I'm going to send you prophets and wise men and scribes. Jesus is going to send them apostles, New Testament prophets and missionaries. He is going to send them preachers and sages and interpreters of Scripture. And the Pharisees and those who are like them will do to them what they did to Jesus. Verse 34 is the book of Acts. Verse 34 is church history. A quick word about Abel and Zechariah. Very, very fascinating. So incredibly interesting. Abel was the first death and the first murder in the Hebrew Scriptures. Genesis 4.8, Cain killed his brother Abel. Zechariah, the priest, not the prophet, this is the last person murdered in the last book of the Hebrew canon, 2 Chronicles 24, 20-22. In fact, I want us to go look at that. We're almost done, so just sit tight. I want you to look at this passage because it is so representative of everything we're seeing this morning. 2 Chronicles 24. In the Hebrew canon, it's not like our canon ending in Malachi. Their scriptures of the Old Testament, 2 Chronicles is the last book. And so Jesus is drawing from the first book to the last book, the entire Bible of his day. And he uses Abel and he uses Zechariah. Interesting, isn't it? In English, at least, A to Z. But look at chapter 24 of 2 Chronicles in verse 20. And you'll see this is Zechariah the priest because of where he was killed, not Zechariah the prophet who has a book by that name. Verse 20, then the Spirit of God came on Zechariah the son of Jehoiada the priest, He's a priest, the son of a priest, and he stood above the people and he said to them, Thus God has said, Why do you transgress the commandments of the Lord and do not prosper? I mean, that's a summary of the whole Old Testament, isn't it? That's a summary of Israel's whole existence. Why do you transgress and you do not prosper? Why? Because you have forsaken the Lord. He has also forsaken you. This is exactly what's going on with Jesus in the temple that day. They have rejected him. He is rejecting them. Verse 21, so they conspired against him, Zechariah. See, he gave the message. They didn't like the message. Verse 21, they conspired against him, just as they conspired against Jesus. And at the command of the king, they stoned him to death in the court of the house of the Lord. The Jews stoned a priest to death in the court of the house of the Lord. It was actually between, as Jesus says, it was between the temple and the altar, a place that only a priest could go. Thus, Joash the king did not remember the kindness which his father Jehoiada had shown him, but he murdered his son. And as he died, Zechariah now, as he died, he said, 
May the Lord see and avenge. There is a question then, because Jesus said, Son of Berechiah, and Second Chronicles says, Son of Jehoiada, whose son is he? The answer is both. Jehoiada was his immediate father. Bechariah would have been a grandfather or a great-grandfather is the best explanation I have found of that. Finally, verse 36. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. The question is raised, why does sin and guilt fall on the entire nation and not just the hypocritical scribes and Pharisees? Because the children are not punished for the sins of the fathers. The answer is because the nation willfully followed the blind guides in rejecting Jesus. They are responsible for following the scribes and Pharisees. The bottom line is, wherever religious hypocrisy reigns, God's true messengers are always rejected, hated, and sometimes even killed. And that's church history in a nutshell. So there they are, four marks of religious hypocrisy. You can see them. You can review them. I end with just a few really prayer requests and exhortations. May professing Christians be warned. May we be warned that we're leading people with a true gospel and not a truncated gospel, not a watered-down gospel, not something that's more palatable. May we be warned that we're not covering up sin with our church attendance. May we be warned that we're not overly concerned with what people think of us versus what God thinks of us. May we be warned that persecution is going to come. If you're living the truth and speaking the truth, persecution is inevitable, even in Kerrville, Texas. May the visible church be warned. May this pastor, my fellow elders, deacons, and members of Kerrville Bible Church be warned. And may God give us grace to examine our hearts today, right now, to examine our lives not the scribes and the Pharisees Jesus is talking to, but to examine our hearts and lives. May God give us grace right here, right now, to confess our religious hypocrisy. May God give us grace to repent and to do better so that none of these four marks could be said of us, so that none of these four marks could be true of us. May God give me grace to do this. May He give you grace to do this, that we would be relentless in rooting out this heinous, wicked sin from our hearts and from our lives. Let's pray. Just take a few moments now just to do just that, for you to examine your heart, examine your life. You see, the unrepentant religious hypocrite never sorrows, never repents, never tries to do better. That's a religious fraud. But a true Christian can stumble in this sin just like any other sin. And when we stumble in this sin like any other sin and we become aware of it, we just simply need to do with it what we would do with any other sin. Confess it to God, receive His forgiveness, repent of it, and strive to do better. Seek to do better. 
long to do better. We need to claim a couple of verses right now if we're a Christian being convicted. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So I'll give you a few moments. Father, I'm sure in the hearing of my voice right now, there are believers and unbelievers alike, and we have different needs before you right now. And we pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would be at work in each of our hearts right this moment. Everyone on this platform, every one of these pews in our gym, on the live stream. That you would do what's needed in each of our lives individually. A custom application of this weighty, weighty passage. We pray, God, for your enabling grace to obey what you require, to walk in humility, to walk in brokenness, to guard our hearts, to live a life that is pleasing in your sight so that Jesus Christ would come to have first place in everything. We ask it in his name. Amen.